I want to continue in the identical vein that we initiated last week when we addressed the commandment, you shall not murder, by asking the preliminary question on the virtue of human life with this question today. What is the value of marriage? In fact, that's my title for you this morning. What is the value of marriage? Let me begin by saying this. God's Word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the book about which Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away, has a lot to say about relationships, marriage itself, and of course the relationship that composes a marriage. But like many things, the farther we are removed from Eden, the more perverse and twisted the good blessings of God become. And the more unsuccessful we are at maintaining them outside of Christ. Sadly, there is no procedure that can make up for broken families. There is no policy that can make up for fatherless homes. There is no program that can fill the holes made by an unfaithful spouse. But what we can do as the faithful, truth-loving Christians who sit at the foot of the cross anticipating a word from the Lord is learn. Amen? And put into practice those lessons that he has for us to safeguard our marriages and the marriages of the next generation, for this much is certain. The church and the world are looking eerily similar on the topics of marriage and divorce. When we survey the landscape of marriage and divorce in the world versus that of the church, we're not seeing that much of a difference. We're moving along in our study of the Ten Commandments, and today we're looking at the connection to last week's study, whereas murder begins with the heart being full of hate, Jesus says adultery begins with the heart being full of lust. So let's begin with our first point this morning and our first question, which is this, what is marriage? Under the title that we have this morning, what is the value of marriage? Our first point is, what is, in fact, marriage? First and foremost, in order to properly understand the commandment that's being given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, and you shall not commit adultery, we must first and foremost, again, understand what a marriage is. How can we truly understand adultery if we don't first understand marriage? Let me share some statistics with you. In 1960, I wasn't born yet, but I hear it was a great time. It was, okay. In 1960, of the adults who were 18 to 29 years of age, 60% were married. In 2011, just over 10 years ago, the same demographic was only married by a percentage of 20%. By 2018, that was another 9% affected. Now, 
Is it a sin to get married later in life? No, of course not. Is it a sin to be single? Absolutely not. The gentle reminder that seems to be emphatic in every form and fashion, Jesus was single. Okay? But listen, what we're talking about is the general trend of our country and its inevitable consequences as it regards the topic of marriage. And while I'm not a prophet, I don't see this trend changing. People aren't getting married. And there are a variety of reasons for this. Some of them are going to come up here on the screen. You can write some of these down. First, the percentage of unmarried people isn't the only thing that's increasing. Divorce is increasing too. This is one reason why I think marriage has been negatively trending. For some people, especially those who witnessed an ugly divorce, or those people who were brought in, brought up, excuse me, in a single parenthood environment, marriage isn't an option. For some, it's unimaginable that their life could go any different than the direction that their parents' life went. And so they reject the idea of marriage outright. A second reason can be because adulthood is being postponed. Stanley Hall in the early 20th century postulated that the new development or developmental stage began in the 20th century with the advent of, the, of technology and societal change. And of course, that developmental stage that was added is called adolescence. Before then, there was no adolescence. You grew up as a young person, and then you went from being a young person to an adult, a young adult, but an adult nonetheless. Now we have adolescence, and adolescence has become this very plastic and, and flexible term so that we really don't know when it begins, and we obviously don't know when it ends. Let me tell you how I think this is affecting us. We're not expecting young men to be young men anymore. We're allowing them to maintain a level of boyhood that is crippling our society, postponing important things like marriage and parenthood, and weakening the church. And we're doing the same to girls. We are teaching girls that nothing really matters except their physical appearance. And we're expecting more of them as women because we aren't making men like we used to. So now the women have to do twice the job that they used to do because there aren't any men around anymore. Because we've got 29-year-olds without jobs living in their mother's house playing video games. Now, I'm not against strong women. I have a family full of strong women. But I reject the idea that modern feminists postulate today, which is to say you are either married as a woman or you are strong as a woman. I reject that dichotomy. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think that that is a false dichotomy. This is what I think. To be a Christian and biblical woman is to be strong and married. But young people, today, they want to coast. Young men aren't pursuing women anymore. 
young men are pursuing women through Snapchat now. It used to be that if you had an interest in a woman as a young man, you had to go speak to her face to face. You had to ask her out. You had to have a plan. You couldn't do it in your pajamas from your bedroom. But that's the way it is now. Now everything is DMs. Young men aren't pursuing financial stability anymore. I find it unfathomable that young men aren't interested in having money in the bank, having their own place, telling their parents, I love you and I appreciate you, but in the first five minutes that I can afford it, I'm out of this house. It's not normal to postpone independence. It's not healthy to postpone independence. But in the paradigm and in the program of God's family unit, as we see young men postpone it, the women are going, to whom shall I go? We see also today young men failing to solidify their craft. So everything is being postponed, jobs, careers, crafts, skills, education, and of course, marriage. We have what's called the Peter Pan syndrome, where men just want to be boys. They want to play games. They don't want responsibility. They don't want excellence. They just want to play. They want wives that take care of them the way that their mothers did when they were six, bring them milk in bed pat them on the back even though they're failing at their job, telling them that they're doing wonderful and that it's everybody else's fault. So we try to define marriage today in view of what we see and what we find is this. We can't define marriage on the broken pieces that exist in society today. We have to go back to the word of God, look at the expectations that God places on a man and on a woman, and then say, in view of the expectations that God places on a man and a woman, when they come together, what is a marriage? We can't back into it any other way. And what I want to acknowledge that there are many contributing factors to the issues that we have at hand, and we've already mentioned some of them. I don't want to make excuses. The truth is, people still want the benefits of marriage, but selfishly, they don't want to make the commitment that marriage includes and requires. It's becoming more and more common to avoid the sanctity and uniqueness of the marriage covenant today by replacing it with three things. Procrastination, cohabitation, and fornication. If I can have that, why should I be so stupid as to make a promise in public and before God? But that's the mentality of cowards. That's the mentality of children. That's not the mentality of mature adults who are seeking to please God. This is why expectations matter, friends. One of the first assignments that I give to people who are asking me for premarital counseling, which I do very little of, by the way, because I don't want to deal with it. Not because I 
don't want to do it, but is this. I want you to write your expectations of marriage, and I want you to write your expectations of marriage, and you're not allowed to talk to her, and she's not allowed to talk to you, and when you come back next time, we'll hash it out. And what is incredible is not only the superficiality of the expectations that are listed, but what's incredible is how few expectations are listed. The reality of the matter is, is people are going into marriage today and they have no idea what to expect. And those expectations that they do have that have been sort of ingrained into them by their goods and their bads, by their successes and their failures, all those things that are part and parcel of who they are because of the experiences they've had as young people growing up, they bring them into their marriage, but they don't always talk about them because sometimes they're ugly. greatest virus waiting to infect marriages today is false expectations. Expectations that are unfair, expectations that are unbiblical, expectations that quite frankly can't be met. We all, as younger people, look up to the older folks and we see what they have achieved in their marriages. But we want the reward without the responsibility. We want the victory without the virtue. We want the outcome without the output. Sometimes we mock and laugh at some of the older folks who said we walked to school uphill both ways in the snow. But until you've been married as long as they have, until you've been through the highs and lows that they have, you don't understand what they mean by that. In a sense, they did walk uphill both ways in the snow. And we have a lot of people in our church who are a testimony to this. Who's been married 20 years here in this church? Who's been married 30 years? 40 years? 50 years? 55 years? 57 years? Holy cow. Hang on, hang on. We got to keep going now. We got to know. 58. 59. 60. 61. Yeah, this is incredible. They've been married longer than I've been alive. Now today, when you meet people and they, you say, oh, you're married. Yeah, I've been married. How long have you been married? I've been married 24 years. They go, 24 years? How old are you? But it used to be that marriage was the thing that pivoted you into adulthood. Today, we're postponing that. But we're having to postpone it because we aren't growing our children. The reality of the matter is some of us were ready at 20, 22 years of age to get married. But when we think of our kids, we're like, no way. They're not ready. No way. That doesn't fall on the shoulders of our children. That falls on our shoulders. Now, if in God's providence and plan, he doesn't have a spouse for them at 22, that's God's business. Amen? Not everybody has the same plan in God's providence. And we need to accept that and we need to be sensitive to that. 
But in general, we definitely see a trend going a completely different direction. So what is marriage? Marriage is a God-ordained, God-blessed union where a man and a woman pursue God's glory in their relationship and family. Say that again. Marriage is a God-ordained, God-blessed union where a man and a woman pursue God's glory in their relationship and family. If that was consistently the case, and we didn't live in a world of sin as we do, we wouldn't have a commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. But we do. And that leads us to our second point. What is adultery? If we've defined marriage, in part, lacking as it is, because of our failure to grow the subsequent generations up to adulthood. What is adultery? Well, that's the second thing that we need to tackle in our topic on marriage. So going back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, if you'll look at it again with your eyes, it says simply, and you shall not commit Adultery. I think it's interesting that the fifth commandment, which transitions the commands that are vertical, our relationship with God, to the commands that are horizontal, begin like this, honor your father and your mother. You are not allowed to take anybody's life. Murder is wrong. Also, adultery is wrong. It's interesting that it didn't start with adultery. It didn't start with murder. It started with your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. And if you honor your father and your mother, if your father and mother did things the way that they're supposed to do, then your life would be lived in such a way that you would not murder, you would not commit adultery, so on and so forth. Well, adultery is a multidimensional thing a multidimensional issue, and it involves the heart. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her or with him in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Church, adultery is such a serious issue to Jesus that he says it's better to rip your eye out than it is for you to have this problem, the problem of unfaithfulness. Now, of course, we can cut all, all our eyes out. We can cut off our hands, we can cut off our feet, we can do whatever we want, but at the end of the day, if we pluck out our eyes, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're having only godly thoughts. Amen? 
I think you understand the point here. What Jesus is saying quite simply is this. We must take serious steps to guard our holiness and the integrity of our hearts in regards to our marriages. Serious steps. Serious steps. Wendell Berry writes this. The marriage vow unites not just a woman and a man with each other. It unites each of them with the community in a vow of sexual responsibility toward all others. Did you get that? To be a Christian, whether single or married, means to be a person who is responsible with their sexuality. God has made us to be sexual beings. But he did not make us to be sexual beings outside of the covenant of marriage. As single people, we must be responsible with our sexuality. As married people, we must be responsible with our sexuality by guarding it and ensuring that it is only experienced and it is only shared with that person to whom we have made a pact. Sexuality is God's blessing of marriage. And it is something that is wonderful and blissful. But it is not meant for anything and everybody. It is meant for the confines of the covenant of marriage. But the truth is, we can be unfaithful in physical ways, in emotional ways, and in spiritual ways. This is what James means in James chapter 4 when he says, You adulterers and adulteresses, how can you love God and the world? The reality of the matter is, between James chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5, which I read previously with Jesus' words, we can be unfaithful without physically being unfaithful. We have to guard our hearts. The covenant that we call marriage is supposed to have a depth and a breadth that is enough to satisfy our needs so that we don't feel compelled or convicted to search elsewhere for what we should be receiving from our lover and our partner. That is marital responsibility. Husbands, if your wife is not satisfied, that is not her fault. Wives, if your husband is not satisfied, that is not his fault. When you stand before God and before all your family and friends and you make that covenant vow in sickness and in health, in in riches and in poverty, no matter what comes, I will be faithful to you. You are saying, I will do what I must to bring you joy. It is the epitome of loving your neighbor, a marriage is. Why is it that we, in the church especially, are serving the poor and reaching the lost and serving in ministry, and then when we go home, our husband or our wife says, oh, I really enjoy this, or I think we should do this, that, or the other thing, and it becomes, oh, I'm too tired for all that. The very first person we should be serving is our spouse. We should not be living with our spouse under the assumption that they understand we really don't want to do any of that for them. 
we're sinners. And challenges come in marriage, amen? I mean, Dimey makes our marriage so hard sometimes. And by the way, our marriages are not impervious to the enemy's attack. If the enemy can find a chink in your armor, if the enemy can cause unhealthiness in the church by compromising the families in the church, that's what he's going to do. He loves to do that. Very few churches have been so negatively affected as those churches who have had a leader fall. But for this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the ways that we should be doing marriage rather than delineate the 101 ways that we shouldn't, right? The commandment is this. You shall not commit adultery. There's our boundary. The fence line is this. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, well, we understand that. So the follow-up question is this. Well, then what shall we do? If we shall not commit adultery, what shall we do? Let's talk about that for a minute. First, we shall be faithful in all things and at all times. We shall be faithful in all things and at all times. God is our example of this. God keeps his word, and God is faithful. Listen to these verses, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful. Church, do you, do you get that? You can't say it any clearer than this. God is faithful. And in part, the reason God relays the commandments that he does to us is because the commandments reflect his character. You know why we don't commit adultery? Because God is not a cheater. You know why we don't commit adultery? Because God keeps covenant. You know why we accentuate and exemplify faithfulness? Because our God is faithful. God is faithful to himself. He never vacillates. James chapter 1 says with him, there is no shadow due to change. He's consistent. Listen to me now while I ask you this question. As a husband or as a wife, are you consistent in keeping your vows to your spouse. Now, some of us might be thinking, oh, it's been a tough season. It's been a hard five years. And sometimes, let's face it, you wake up that way and go, this is going to be a hard year. Sometimes you're going through a season, you go, I, I don't know how long this season is going to be, but by God, I hope it ends soon. The reality is we have episodes like that in our marriages. We all do. doesn't matter who we are. But do we wake up in the morning and say, I'm keeping my vows to my spouse today? That's what faithful spouse do. God is faithful to his word. 
The promises that he's made, he keeps. And then finally, God is faithful to his people. Well, of course God is faithful to his people because he's faithful to his word and he's faithful to himself. But you see the subsequent sequence of faithful ideas here. He's faithful to himself, therefore he's faithful to his word, therefore he's faithful to his people. Second, we shall sacrifice our own conveniences. We shall sacrifice our own conveniences. Friends, when we get married, we're always anticipating great times. No one gets married and says, I can't wait till we have financial difficulties. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait till my husband or my wife develops this illness that nobody sees coming 10 or 20 years down the road. It's going to be a blast. But these times come upon us, don't they? They come uninvited. They come without announcement. Sometimes we're ill-prepared, but they come. And the condition of your character and soul and the condition of your marriage will dictate whether or not that season is a season you make it through. Marriage requires faithfulness and sacrifice. But you know, when we're young and we're sexy and we look amazing when we get dressed up and we have all our friends come and we go, look how good we look. This is gonna be so great. Uh, Sickness and of course, because we don't really believe we're ever gonna get sick. Whether in riches or in poverty. Well, of course, because we're not going to get impoverished. The stock market's never going to crash. A pandemic is never going to hit. I'll never be fired. Why would that happen? The reality of the matter is we never think the hard times are going to happen to us. They might happen to everybody else, but they're not going to happen to us. But you know what follows a wedding? A marriage. And marriages happen in real life, in real time, and with real people. And so here we are saying all these things that we really are only half-hearted about. And when the marriage hits challenging seasons, it suffers because when we made the vow to God and to our partner, we were only half-serious. We didn't really anticipate that person disappointing us. We didn't really anticipate our own sin. We didn't really anticipate the challenges that the world or the enemy of God would bring to our doorstep. If our marriages would go well, if they would be successful and blessed by God, then our marriages must be sacrificial. Amen? The truth is the Bible promises us trouble in this life, and much of that trouble affects our marriage. We have to make a sacrifice of our own conveniences for the sake of our marriages and our families. It is very sad to me to see so many people take interest in their health, 
in their well-being, in their education, in their career, in their relationships, after they've already blown their marriage to bits. There has been more than one husband or wife or ex-husband or ex-wife who has sat with me and heard from me. If you would have done then what you're doing now, you'd be married. But you didn't sacrifice. Now you're sacrificing. If you want your marriage to be successful and you want your marriage to be maintained, it's not about you. It's about your spouse. Our example of this is found in Jesus. Jesus is our example of sacrifice. Listen to John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would bring us to God. Friends, Jesus is our example of sacrifice. Jesus gave himself up for his bride, for the church. Are you giving yourself up for your spouse? Are you sacrificing your own conveniences, your own pleasures, your own preferences for your spouse? When you do it, and then your spouse does it for you, you have unity. That's what unity is. Unity exists in a marriage when one spouse is giving to the other while the other spouse is giving as well. But not only shall we be faithful and sacrificial, we shall also be protective. We shall be protective. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. And the Bible says that he's not only our guarantee, but that he protects us from any evil attack, from sin, and from eternal separation from God. The presence of God the Holy Spirit is the very down payment of and guarantee for our salvation. He protects us as God's people, and he ensures our future. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, it says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then Paul continues, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To be a Christian is to be possessed by God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.14 says that who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? The Holy Spirit is our guarantee 
until we acquire it in fullness. Are you protecting your spouse? Are you protecting your marriage? Are you the guarantee of your marriage, its longevity, and its health? What we're talking about, church, is a marriage covenant that is modeled after the Trinity, who has established the most important covenant we will ever be the benefactors of, namely the new covenant. The Father is faithful. The Son is sacrificial. And the Spirit is protective. And because of this, the faithfulness of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the protection of the Spirit, we have eternal security in our covenant with God. Now translate that to your marriage. Reflect on the covenant of marriage. In your mind, do you think we pay as much respect and honor to marriage as we ought to? Do we take that Christian idea and implement it in our marriage? I don't think so. I think it's become diluted. It's become compromised. It's become common. What used to be a remarkable thing, a goal, a point of pride and gladness, has now just become a maybe. And if I get to it, I will do it kind of goal. I think God has more in store for our marriages. And I think God has more in store for those who look at marriage like it's a maybe kind of thing. To close, let me say this. There are many ways in which the world can see our faith in Christ in action. And marriage, I believe, is one of those ways. How we love each other as husbands and wives. How we endure hardship together as husbands and wives. And how we are uncompromising in our vows is all a testimony to the grace and greatness of the triune God who is faithful, sacrificial, and protective. It's my hope and prayer that we are taking every possible advantage to not only demonstrate our faith to the world, but also to the next generation. How can we ensure the success of our children if we are not following the example of our Father and living that example so that we provide an example. Our kids are not going to be greater than we are. If you want your kids to be great, you have to aim at greatness yourself. If you aim at mediocrity, you'll be lucky if your kids are mediocre. By any standard of measurement, Take the godly expectations that are found in the Bible and pass them down to your children. Challenge them in healthy ways. Let them know that God has expectations of them, and because God has expectations of them, 
you have expectations of them. And demonstrate to them that God has expectations of you too, and you are aiming to fulfill those expectations, not only as a parent, but as a Christian. God has designed the family as the center of the community and society, and it behooves us, therefore, as Christians to work hard on our families. The violence that we see being perpetrated by 20-something-year-old men would not be happening if they had a wife and children and a job. Most of what we see unfolding in society is not the DA's fault. It's not the district attorney's fault that your children are, not, are misbehaving, breaking the law. It's your fault. There's a culpability that parents have in this. But what degree? Oh, we'll never know. But how can we as Christians lead by example? How can we lead in such a way and live in such a way that our very presence provides conviction to the people who lack character and integrity in their marriage, in their parenting, in their view of society? Let me close with this. If you want your children to take you seriously, you've got to take your faith seriously. And if you want your spouse to take the marriage that you have with them seriously, don't wait for them. Initiate this. Today, make a vow. I shall be faithful, sacrificial, and protective of my spouse and our marriage. And on the days your spouse is not faithful or sacrificial or protective, you be faithful, sacrificial, and protective. And pray that God will give them that conviction. 